Hi, welcome to the pub. First visit in June. Glad you have a few minutes to stop by. Seems that I'm in an every couple of weeks rut now with pub visits these days. Probably okay as we're all settling into our lives in the current situation with ongoing COVID, mass shootings, climate change, and political bullshit. But every couple of weeks does give us more shit to talk about and to think about what's really important and what we can easily toss in our collective conversational trash bins. So, what's been happening the last couple of weeks, huh? Uh, A few more mass shootings? Sadly, not surprising anymore. I mean, with every Second Amendment idiot, moron, and dipshit able to buy a military machine gun, I mean, is anyone really surprised that these tragedies continue? And as sad and tragic as all these events are, when it's a classroom of fourth graders, well, that's just horrifically fucked up. I mean, I have no words. Well, I have a lot of fucking words, but they're directed to the politicians who continue to sanction this shit. So what else is going on? Of course, COVID is still hanging around and slowly becoming a permanent part of our lives. Better get used to that, gang. The planet continues to heat up. Probably no stopping that now. Now I need to shift gears and figure out just how to deal with a much hotter planet. And just my humble opinion. Russia still acting like the Earth's biggest bully. I'm so glad that we're not just sending our thoughts and prayers to the good folks in Ukraine. At least they're getting some substantially more concrete assistance than our school kids are these days. Oh, yeah, and I decided to have my first heart attack a week ago. Recovering nicely now, but scary for sure. I've decided to start keeping track of which of my organs are seriously trying to kill me. Well, here's something that I found really interesting. An article from the BBC on why we have favorite colors. Now, this has actually been a subtle interest of mine for quite some time. I'm a pretty basic color kind of guy. I mean, I grew up with the basic eight-pack of Crayola crayon colors. One red, one green, one blue, one white, etc. So my color palette is pretty pedestrian. Functional, for sure, but not very exciting. However, you see, my wife is an artist, and she sees colors that haven't even been invented yet. She sees about nine different shades of each color and then some. I mean, she can see a dozen different versions of white. White! A color with no actual color. And there are 12 different varieties of white. So this situation leads us to some very interesting conversations when we decide to repaint one of our rooms. So it seems that all of us are primed from an early age to have a favorite color, and that this changes over time, and it's mostly beyond our conscious control. Right now, blue and a few shades of blue are king, consistently listed as the most favorite color of kids, and this persists well into adulthood for the vast majority, and it's cross-cultural, everyone, and I mean everyone loves blue. Well, not so much in Japan, where white is the favorite. My wife would probably love that. Uh, there being so many shades of white out there, you know. According to some of the studies out there, really young kids lean towards bright colors like orange, yellow, pinks, etc. And as we age, we develop stronger attractions to certain colors that we've been exposed to and the associations we link with these colors. Historically, social and marketing trends of the pink for girls and blue for boys have reinforced this, but there's much more to the story here. A lot of folks think that as kids become teenagers, they like darker hues, but the research really doesn't support this. I mean, the majority of teenage boys in the UK favored white bedrooms while they listed red and blue as their favorite colors. The leading theory on this is something called ecological valence theory, which I have no idea what the hell that really means. But simply put, we have favorite colors because we have favorite things. 
Now this easily explains why different people have different preferences for the same color and why your preference for a given color can change over time as new associations develop, whether through everyday exposure in the world around us or artificially by deliberate conditioning. Thank you very much, Madison Avenue. Now, blue's reign has continued uninterrupted since the earliest recorded color studies, which took place a couple hundred years ago back in the 1800s. Most of our experience with the color blue are most likely positive, like a beautiful ocean or clear skies. You know, having the blues uh, is an idiom that's really only found in English. In the same vein, uh, this might be why that, that muddy brown color is so reviled, uh, associated as, as it is with the biological waste and rotting foods. Okay, side note here. My favorite color is actually brown, and earth tone shades of brown. Could that be because I just see shit all around me? Well, I don't know. You be the judge. Turns out that the environment we live in nudges our color preferences in other ways, too. Another study that they reported on looked at students at the University of California in Berkeley and Stanford, showing that the varsity colors of a college influenced the hues they picked as favorites. The more that a student said they endorsed and embraced the values and the spirit of the school, the higher those color preferences rose. It's also a misconception that the very, very young infants can't see colors. It's not true. The, the eyes develop unevenly, and the receptors for greens and reds are more mature at birth than those which process blues and yellows. So intense reds, in particular, are registered the most easily in newborns. So in a nutshell, this ecological valence idea that we yoke meanings uh, into colors from the objects that we <clears throat> encounter around the world holds true even among the youngest. Children only pay attention to a color when it has a function associated with it, and they really won't pay attention to the color unless they learn something from that. So, given this, what do you think about your favorite colors? I mean, is it your parents' fault that you love that hideous lavender? Or can you blame your alma mater's gross combination of greens and yellows? Yes, I'm thinking of you, you Oregon ducks. I'm thinking that my love of brownish colors is linked to my love of maybe darker beers and whiskey aged in a barrel for more than 18 years. Yeah, you know, just saying. So I'm actually going to go look for a nicely colored single malt at the bar right now. Uh, please stick around and see what's being poured today. And of course, an uppity woman story. back from the bar and the uh, contrary to what I, I usually um, pull off the shelf uh, I grabbed an Irish whiskey blend tonight and this is uh, a kind of a unique and fun whiskey it's called a wolfhound Irish whiskey uh, the gentle giant uh, of course you know a lot of you may know that, that we had an Irish wolfhound as a, as a pet uh, for uh, for a while uh, lovely fellow uh, we miss him every day uh, so when I saw Wolfhound whiskey on the shelf, I had to buy some, uh, and it, it's it's actually a, a really enjoyable whiskey. Um, it's got kind of a really sweet, uh, but not too sweet, kind of a honeysuckle, uh, butterscotchy um, uh, nose to it. Um, really a, a nice kind of vanilla flavor. Um, it, it's not uh, uh, you know not real strong. And it's uh, it's really affordable. I mean, this is a this is a dirt cheap whiskey, uh, so there's no excuse for not having some of this around. Uh, it, it's great if you just want to sip on something quick. Uh, it's great if you would need to mix a cocktail. 
so look for uh, Wolfhound Irish Whiskey. Uh, it's easily available, and uh, it's really got uh, some benefits that a lot of the other really inexpensive whiskeys don't have. So uh, Wolfhound Irish Whiskey, a blended whiskey, Irish in nature, and uh, really enjoyable. So uh, let me finish this up, and I want to share uh, uh, a, a really old uh, religiously themed uppity woman story with you. It's interesting. Stick around. So behind almost every great religion founder, there's a great woman. Uh, Muhammad and Islam were no exceptions. Uh, an orphan who'd had a tough life as a shepherd, Muhammad in his 20s got a job as an escort to a trade caravan heading from Arabia to Syria. The owner of this caravan? A widow in her 40s named Khadija, an aristocrat from the key crossroads city of Mecca whose international business came via camelback that had made her rich. Uh, and you know, belonging to one of the most powerful and wealthy families in Mecca could have helped a tad. Now, not only did this independent woman of commerce like Muhammad's escort services, she dug the man himself. Long courted by upper-class males eligibles around Mecca, she now took the astonishing action of proposing to Muhammad. You think, say, Hawkins' thing is unusual now? It was really unheard of in the world in uh, 595 AD. After marriage, uh, Khadija kept on running her business with some timeouts for six pregnancies, Muhammad kept on running caravans around the Middle East with timeouts for solitary meditation on spirituality. After receiving a vision in 610, Muhammad told his wife that he was, a, he was God's messenger for a new monotheistic religion called Islam, which means submission to the will of God. Converts were called Muslims, meaning those who submit. Khadija immediately signed up to become his first, if not his most submissive, uh, disciple. Now, for the next 24 years, Khadija supported Muhammad both emotionally and financially as he struggled to win acceptance for and converts to his new religion. A three-time widow herself, Khadija was in favor of legal and economic rights for women. During her lifetime, Muhammad lobbied hard for women's rights and won acceptance for his programs, which sounds astonishingly enlightened. Among the rights he established by law for women, females got to choose their own marriage partners, after marriage, the, the dowry was paid directly to them, not their parents. The new bride had full and inclusive use of the dowry money during her lifetime and as a nest egg should she become a widow or a divorcee. And with Khadija's help, he also developed financial incentives for men to remain married. These laudable achievements were, sadly, short-term. Worse yet, they weren't written down. None of Muhammad's teachings were during his lifetime. After Khadija died in 619, a grieving Muhammad went on to marry 12 women in the next dozen years. After the Prophet's death in 632, the disciples of Islam uh, assumed their final written form in the Quran and the Hadith, a collection of Muhammad's sayings. With their restrictions on female movement and the power given to husbands to administer physical justice in the home, Khadija would be hard-pressed to find her hubby's once humanistic creed that judged women as equals to men. Sadly, uh, we, we miss your, your, your input, Khadija. Um, so hats off to you, and we raise our glasses to you. And thanks, everybody, for sticking around the pub today. Uh, I hope to see you back soon. Sláinte.